Hello, I'm Dale Gentry, and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. I'm an ecologist and a professor of biology and a Christian. I find great joy and harmony in my life exploring science, studying birds, and in following Jesus. I started Disciple Science to produce short videos and other resources to show how integrating science with Christian faith can inspire a fuller knowledge of God. I'm glad you're here to join me and occasional guests to explore the intersection of science and Christian faith. Now, let's get on with the podcast. This week, we're sharing the second of a three-part speaking engagement that I gave on the Christian church and scientific thought. My goal is to show how the current model of conflict between science and Christianity has a discernible history, and retracing our steps gives us a roadmap to undo our mistakes as we seek a more harmonious relationship for science and faith. If you would rather watch than listen to this talk, you can see it and the first week's talk on our partner YouTube channel called Dale Gentry on Science and Faith. Everything on that channel, like what we put on the Disciple Science YouTube channel and our website, is completely free thanks to your support. Disciple Science is a crowd-funded nonprofit based in St. Paul, Minnesota, All of our work is thanks to you and your generous gifts. If you want to support us, you can do so and find all our resources at DiscipleScience.com. All right, it's about 10 a.m., so I think we are going to get started here momentarily. For those of you that weren't here last week, my name is Dale Gentry. I am a professor of biology at the University of Northwestern over in St. Paul in Roseville. I've been there for about 10 years and have been at Salem uh, as a member for now for, well, I don't have been a member, I've been a member for about three or four years, but I've been attending Salem for about six years now. And so uh, I have just really enjoyed this adult Sunday school class and I am honored to be able to make a contribution to it. So this is a three-week class. Last week was the first week. This is week two, and then we're gonna finish up next week. So as I mentioned, I'm a professor of biology. If you're not familiar with Northwestern, I imagine most of you are, it's a Christian school. And so I have been over the past 10 years trying to teach biology to young Christians and talk about that integration. And uh, many many of you are probably aware of just the existing tension that persists between science and Christianity in our society. And so partly from witnessing my own students wrestle with this tension, and partly from dealing with it myself and seeing it manifest in society, about a year ago, I launched a nonprofit media ministry called Disciple Science. And Disciple Science is a, a, a crowdfunded nonprofit that's primarily making short animated videos and a podcast to help portray the message that integrating science with Christian faith not only shouldn't distract you from your faith, but will actually strengthen your faith and that once we correctly frame the relationship we'll see them thrive together so that's the message i'm trying to convey and last week and this week we are going to continue with figuring out how we got into this paradigm of tension as it is so last week we talked about scientific revolution and the enlightenment this week we're going to get into darwin and evolution and how christians responded to those scientific theories And next week, I'm going to try and portray a message of how we can proceed out of the conflict and into a a place of peace and harmony and where the the presence of both science and faith together can can thrive and um, strengthen each other's um, uh, resolve. So uh, just a quick reminder of what we went through last week. For those of you that weren't here or for those of you that just want a little uh, brush up on what we covered, we started roughly in about 1500. And we're mostly going through a historical account. And prior to what we call the scientific revolution, the emergence of science in its more modern form, science has kind of always been around, but it became uh, a more empirical process in the, in the uh, 1500s. And prior to that point, the Christians mostly saw uh, our opportunities to interact with God's creation as something that would draw us into relationship with God. It would deepen our faith. It would strengthen our resolve to, to follow Jesus. 
Um, and then with the Protestant Reformation tied at the same time of the scientific revolution, we had the emergence of new ideas, that science was a legitimate pathway to truth. So empirical studies could provide truth that maybe divine revelation and scripture wasn't giving us. And we empowered individuals through the Protestant Reformation, right? P prior to that point, uh, the authority was in the church to define truth. And in the Protestant Reformation with the uh, now abundance and availability of Bibles, thanks to the printing press and the increasing literacy, people could read the Bible for themselves. And so we said, let's let individuals discover that truth for themselves by reading the Bible instead of relying on, on the Pope or the church to be sort of the, the middleman for, for dis, uh, dispensing truth to, uh, to, the, to the followers of Jesus. So the combination of those two things, that science was a valid pathway to truth and the empowerment of the individuals was sort of the perfect melting pot for the creation of the enlightenment. And the enlightenment was this period where we believed that human reason was all we need to access truth. And so it was kind of pushing back against the church and in some, time, in some cases rejecting the church, rejecting scripture, trying to distance itself from the traditions of the past and saying all we need is, is uh, evidence, a sound mind, and we can discern objective truth. Uh, and so that led to a transition from, from Christians sort of thinking, well, I can use science to, or use nature to encounter God and strengthen my resolve to, I'm going to um, use science as a tool to confirm the truth of Christianity. And so our, our, our vision of the intersection really fundamentally changed from sort of an emotional, spiritual experience of God in creation to, I'm going to use creation to seek objective proofs for Christianity. We're going to prove Christianity through our, our, our reasoning brain, okay? And that, that was most exemplified in the work of this man, William Paley, who in 1802 published a book called Natural Theology. And natural theology is this concept, it's the theology that we can derive from the created world, not from scripture, not from tradition, it's theology that's de derived basically through science, through an understanding of the created world. And so he wrote this book that was widely read. It was the, the uh, New York Times bestseller of the 1800s, right? So it was widely read and embraced and it resonated with people. He said, as we look at plants and animals and biological systems, there is just clear evidence that there must have been an intelligent designer. There must have been a God that's responsible for these things. Of course, they couldn't have assembled in their current form through some random chance. There must be a God. And so uh, Paley's vision of natural theology was widely read, widely understood, and widely embraced. People thought it was brilliant and it was a, a powerful evidence for God. But what we didn't talk about is this, his idea that, that biology is pointing towards a designer was rooted in an idea that we're gonna see start to fall away. It was rooted in an idea of what we call the fixity of species, the fixity of creation. So it was assumed at that point that all creation existed in its current form for as long as it has existed. So basically, it, it was the belief that when God created, and as the account uh, tells us in Genesis, that all the plants and animals uh, were depicted as having been in existence by the end of the creation week, that they just always existed in their current form. So all the species that existed had always existed, uh, and that they had always existed in roughly the form that we saw them today. And so Paley said, if they've always existed as they have, there's no rational explanation but that they were designed by some intelligent being. Okay, so that's where we left off last week with William Paley and rooted in the idea of a fixed creation. Now this, I, this book was read, as we now know, by Charles Darwin. And I imagine all of us are familiar with that name. Charles Darwin is credited with um, supporting the idea of evolution through his theory of natural selection. Now he was born into what we call a free-thinking family, so uh, we now know that his grandfather, for example, was an evolutionist. He didn't really know it in his youth, he encountered that later on, but he, he was born into a free-thinking family, and yet he 
adhered to sort of the traditional views of scripture and the understanding of a fixed creation. It all made sense to him. He resonated it with it. He defended it in his youth. Okay, so he was a man of some piety in his youth. Uh, he initially started college to become a physician. He went to Scotland at the University of Edinburgh, and he found medical school to be dull. He just wasn't interested. He's like, this is not for me at all. And his family was very disappointed in that conclusion, uh, but he was much more interested in in sort of the things that I'm interested in, just studying the plants and animals and rocks and minerals and sort of encountering uh, the, the, the natural world. He wanted to be a natural historian. And at that time, we didn't have universities that had big science departments and a geology department and a biology department and et cetera. If you wanted to study natural history, that was mostly done through parochial schools. And so he enrolled in Cambridge uh, in the School of Divinity. And he went into training to become an Anglican parson, probably not because he had a strong desire to be uh, a church leader, but because that was the most logical pathway to study natural history. So he um, was a pretty good student, graduated toward the top of his class, and we think he finished his undergraduate education still with a pretty strong sense of a fixed creation um, and a belief in God. We know now by the, by the end of his life, he would call himself an agnostic and he had lost his faith. Uh, let's sort of tra tra trace some of that story of how that happened. So by the time he finished his education, he was... Um, he got a position, he kind of didn't really know what he was going to do, and so he did a little traveling with some friends, went down to the Mediterranean to, to do some, some, uh, some study, and then he was recommended for a position by one of his mentors and advisors to be the naturalist on a trip that was going to tour, focusing on South America, but then circumnavigate the globe. And he thought that sounded like a good adventure. So he took up this position, right? So the, the, um, the, the boat called the, the Beagle, the HMS Beagle, that'll um, maybe score you some points on a, a trivia someday, I don't know. Uh, so the, the, the name of the boat was the Beagle and their goal again was just to explore trade and culture in South America, but they wanted to bring along a, a scientist. So they, they hired Darwin and his job was to make discoveries about plants and animals and geology and rocks and fossils and just try and uh, bring new discoveries back home with them from there when they returned. So, so as we can see, they did do a pretty thorough exploration of uh, South America, but then they also circumnavigated the globe. And we know from his journals that when he was on that trip, he was struck by what he saw, and especially his time in the Galapagos Islands, which are right here off the coast of Ecuador. And the Galapagos Islands are a little archipelago of islands uh, of about 18 fairly large islands and then many, many, many much smaller islands. And when he was there, he discovered new species, these giant tortoises and unique birds and plants. And he was um, kind of scratching his head over what he found because he saw these relationships of how each island had its own species of tortoise. They all were clearly related now, the relatedness of species is something very common to us, but it was a little bit foreign in the early 1800s because it was believed all species had been created by God in their current forms. So they didn't descend from an ancestor. And so Paley's explanation of, of God creating things could account for these, but Darwin found the explanations to just be lacking. They weren't sufficient. He said, why, why, do, why does this group of islands have a unique collection of species versus this other group of islands? When he was in the Falkland Islands down here, he said, those groups of islands also have their own unique species, and they're all adapted to their circumstances, and these tortoises and finches on the Galapagos are adapted to their circumstances. And he was just kind of trying to figure out, like, what does this all mean? How do I make sense out of this? And do the, does my understanding of the world through Paley's model of a fixed creation that's brilliant and designed by God, is that the best explanation? So through his undergraduate education and through his travels, he encountered a bunch of ideas that eventually led him to question the idea of a fixed creation, of a fixed species, that species were not changing over time. Among the things that he encountered, number one, was the extinction of species. 
Okay, not a surprising idea to any of us. We are all very familiar with the concept of dinosaurs and that they don't exist anymore, except in the world of Jurassic Park or whatever, right? So at the time, that was a, a novel idea. Only in the uh, 1813 was this idea first sort of published and accepted by the scientists of the Western world that some of the species, that there were species on the planet that just don't exist anymore. Imagine how strange that would have been to, to encounter that idea. And people wrestled with that. What does that mean that God created species that, we, that don't live anymore? How does that fit in with our framework of our understanding of the history of the world? So he, he uh, not only encountered that idea in a book, but he also discovered fossils on his travels through South America of species that were like, clearly these things, nobody's ever seen one of these before, this fossil is of a species that doesn't exist, but they resembled things that did exist, right? So he found, for example, sloths, which are in South America, but sloths that were the size of a bear. And we're like, wow, it looks like a sloth but nobody's ever seen one this big. So he thought it's, it looks like it would be related to a sloth. But again, if species are fixed, then the idea of relatedness of species didn't make sense. Um, they also discovered ancient geology. This was an idea that was published most widely during his trip. So he left on his trip on the Beagle in 1831, and a book came out in 1831 that he was given while he was on his trip by a geologist named Charles Lyell, and as he studied sedimentation rates around the world, and especially in, in, the Western, in Western Europe, he said, I think the accumulation of sediments in the past happened at the same rate that they happen today, and today they happen really slowly. And so he formulated an idea that the Earth is much older than was previously thought. And so he embraced the idea that maybe the Earth was a million years old, right? That which, which seemed just unfathomably old to the people at the time, that the Earth could be a million years old. We now believe it to be billions of years old in, in mainstream science, right? So the an ancient geology, and again, he studied those rocks on his trip, and he sort of, he said, ah, I think this kind of makes sense. He also was most famously for just discovering new species and paying attention to where they lived. That's a modern science we call biogeography, right? It's the study of the distribution of species. And when he was in the Galapagos, and he discovered famously the finches and the tortoises, he said they look like finches and tortoises that I just saw when we were in Ecuador a couple days ago, but they're bigger and different, and each island has its own species, and what do I make of this, right? So he really paid attention to where things lived. And again, it didn't fit into his paradigm that most people believed that all species had gotten on Noah's Ark about 4,000 years ago, and all species then had radiated from the Middle East out into the rest of the world. He said, there are odd placements of species, things that we find in Central and South America that don't exist in Europe, and he couldn't quite make sense out of that. And then lastly, he read more and thought more about the theory of evolution. Now, it's important to note that he did not propose this idea. Evolution was an idea that, exist, that predated Darwin, actually by quite a long time. The first person to propose some version of evolution was Epicurus, a, a, um, a Greek philosopher that, that lived about 300 years before Jesus. So this is an idea that existed for a long, long time, but nobody gave it any thought because nobody could explain how in the world could species change over time? How could new species arise uh, from something that was different before? Nobody could make sense out of it. So nobody gave it, paid it much attention. But leading up to Darwin, uh, again, his grandfather was an evolutionist. There was a prominent theory uh, by a man named Jean-Baptiste de Lamarck who argued for evolution. And he, he, for example, said, well, as giraffes you know, are stretching their necks to try and reach those leaves at the top of the tree, they're elongating their neck, and then they would pass on those long neck genes to their offspring. And people said, eh, I don't think that makes sense, right? That, we, we don't see that. If you take a mouse and cut off its tail and then it has children, its offspring aren't missing tails. And so 
the idea of evolution was rolling around, but people couldn't explain how it might work. So Darwin went on this trip. He returned in 1839, um, or sorry, 1836. And we know that by roughly 1842, he had formulated an idea, but he was hesitant to publish it because he knew it was gonna stir up a hornet's nest of controversy. And he actually didn't want to have controversy with the church. Uh, and so he, he, he hesitated to publish this until he had really solid evidence. And we now know that he eventually rushed his book to publication because he found out that someone else came up with the exact same idea and was also gonna publish his ideas. He didn't wanna get you know, beat to the, to the headline and so he rushed his book to publication eventually. So in 1859, he published his book called the, On the Origin of Species, very famous book that I, um, many of you have probably encountered somewhere in your science training in high school or college. And he wasn't, again, proposing a new idea in evolution. What he proposed was a mechanism for how evolution could occur, and he named that mechanism natural selection. And he borrowed that term from an idea that existed prior, artificial selection, because Darwin was a pigeon breeder, right? He was interested in, in breeding pigeons, which was quite a popular hobby and still is a hobby to this, to this day. And so he knew as a pigeon breeder that you could take traits in your pigeons, say, all right, here's a pigeon that's got, you know, the certain color feather or longer legs or whatever, and you could select that individual and use them in your breeding to pass on their traits to their offspring and that over time you could create pigeons that looked kind of different and acted different and whatnot. And so he had the idea that there might be a process in nature that works kind of the same way, such that nature is selecting for certain traits that are then passed on to the offspring and would create a, a change in species over time. So he proposed natural selection, and we now believe that he wrote his book at least in part as a response to Paley's natural theology. Natural theology was, was stuck in his brain because it was so widely read, it was, and we think it was actually required reading at Cambridge University when he was a student there. It was widely read and accepted. And so he wasn't, he, he didn't dislike Paley, he wasn't angry with him, he just said, I just don't think this is the right view. It, it'd be as if, Somebody today was to publish a book in response to uh, like seven habits of highly effective people, right? And say, no, 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 here's this widely read book. Everybody, you know, thinks it's a uh, uh, wisdom. I actually don't think these are effect, uh, 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 habits of highly effective people. I think these seven habits are more in line with highly effective people. So it was written as a response to highlight what he believed was the wrong view. And he wasn't trying to attack religion he was trying to attack the idea of a fixed universe, of a fixed life of species that don't change over time. So what he, 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 he said he was pushing back against the traditional view of creation. And um, uh, this did ultimately cause him to wrestle with his face, but it wasn't because of a different view of creation. It, there were other factors involved. And actually he wrestled with what much of us, many of us still do, he wrestled with the problem of evil. The problem of evil led him to question God, not, um, not evolution. So ultimately, what we found was that his idea launched a scientific revolution. Um, it is, he is now seen as sort of the, the first step of, of what we now see as sort of a, an evolving universe. And occasionally we hear stories of people whose ideas are not appreciated in their time and only after their death they sort of come to prominence. That's not what happens here. Darwin was immediately seen as innovative and within 10 years, his book was, was read across uh, uh, certainly um, Western uh, Europe, but also North America and people just thought it, it made sense and they embraced it at least to a, to a degree. Everybody agreed that maybe species weren't fixed in place and that they were changing over time. So it launched a scientific revolution, but more uh, noteworthy in our discussion today for the intersection of science and faith, it kind of put an end to natural theology. 
If we trace natural theology back to uh, Newton, right, who said that when I look at the universe and it appears to be intricately designed, it can only be assigned to a creator. And then, part, and then Paley embraces that idea. When I look at, at plants and animals, they appear to be intricately designed and can only, be, only make sense in light of a creator. Darwin proposed an idea that could explain the appearance of design but through natural processes that didn't need divine intervention. And that was kind of a death blow for natural theology. It, it dismissed the idea that God was absolutely essential because science couldn't explain how these things could happen because now science could explain how these things happened, right? So this is, I think, the real tension between science and Christian faith is that we do, are we comfortable with the idea that science, that God accomplishes his purposes through natural processes, or do we need to have miraculous intervention in order for God to be involved? Hold that idea. We're going to talk about that more next week, okay? So we saw an end to natural theology and the evolution of what we now call a naturalist worldview. This is a quote from a modern evolution evolutionary biologist named Richard Dawkins, who's a prominent, um, uh, you know, uh, antagonist towards religion. He thinks all religion is just evil and, you know, there is no God, etc., etc. So he said, it's not that, uh, that people couldn't be atheists before Darwin, but that Darwin created an intellectually fulfilled atheist, right? We now had explanations for why we don't need God. And I think, again, that is the, the, the tension between science and Christianity. And so I want to revisit this slide that I projected last week, right? That in the Christian world, we believe and we see God involved in natural processes, right? And, and we're not even going to talk about whether evolution is the right approach or not. That's, a, this, that's an entirely different discussion. We're just talking about the perception of how God acts. So if we believe that as we seek questions for how does the world work and we find scientific explanations, uh, I think we should be comfortable saying that God is in those scientific processes, right? That God uh, put them in place and God uh, upholds them to this day. But what society hears when we say that we need God to explain X, Y, and Z because science can't explain it, and then eventually science explains it, we just dug a hole for ourselves. We just dug our own grave by saying we need God to explain this process because science can't explain it. And then if science later explains it, we just dug our own grave. And so that's, that I'm giving you kind of a, a, a hint of what we're gonna talk about last week. We need to stop talking about God only in the mysterious we need to be very comfortable with this idea that God is in the natural processes that science can help understand. Okay, so we'll, we'll come back to this later. So how did the Christians respond to Darwin's theories of evolution? Well, kind of two divergent paths, as you can imagine. There were many Christians that took this view, right? That God is just in the scientific mechanisms. And they said, we are perfectly comfortable with the idea of um, of uh, natural selection and evolution being the mechanism that God created. And we'll talk about how they viewed scripture a little bit later today and in, even in more detail next week. But they said, you know, this doesn't bother us. We are comfortable with the idea that God might use this mechanism to create uh, life. Uh, and then the other group, as you would imagine, were not so comfortable with it for many reasons. Uh, but what we'll find is they're probably not the reasons that you would expect. So they rejected evolution, uh, so, some evolution. So almost everybody uh, accepted the idea that at least some evolution took place. And we looked, for example, at the Galapagos, where Darwin did so much of his famous work. And everybody now agrees across the spectrum, even the most strict, ardent, young earth creationists say, we agree that all of those tortoises and all those finches descended from a common ancestor and that new species come about through the process of natural selection. That is no longer controversial at all. What they disagree with is how much evolution has taken place. 
They don't agree that uh, all life is descended from a single common ancestor, okay? So they acknowledge a little bit of natural selection, but not much. And in the early response to Darwin in the late 19th century and early 20th century, they labeled themselves anti-evolutionists, not yet creationists, right? So they were pushing back against evolution. They weren't yet advocating for something. And the reason they were, ad- they were pushing back against evolution, I was shocked to learn this, it wasn't because of scripture. They weren't saying, well, Genesis tells us this isn't the way it was happening. It was because of social Darwinism. Again, we have to think about the historical context for all this happening, especially in the early 20th century, World War I, World War II, the Germans and some Marxist ideas were rooted in social Darwinism, that the powerful could have sort of moral permission if we didn't have a God to oppress and enslave the the weak, right? So it gave um, sort of moral permission to atheists to oppress those that they viewed as, as lesser humans and that that these social Darwinist ideas and eugenic ideas were found in some of the ideas of Nazism and and Marxism. And Christians said, hold hold your horses, right? If that's what evolution teaches us, then we are not on board with evolution. So uh, we we saw the founding founding of these anti-evolution groups largely in pushback to social Darwinism, not uh, you know, what's happening out in nature. And further, there was very little concern about the age of the earth, which is a big point of debate today. But in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was very little concern about an old earth. In fact, if you dig back into some of the Bibles that were published in the early 1900s, for example, the uh, Schofield Reference Bible, which was a very popular version of the King James Bible, presented an old earth is an almost orthodox view. This is just the normal view that almost everyone holds. Now, we don't think that now, but at the time, very few people were concerned with the age of the earth. And we'll see that that idea popped up a little bit later. So um, the response from early Christians was resistance or acceptance. And we have a few more historical events that we need to discuss before we start reflecting on this from the big picture perspective. So these anti-evolution leagues eventually got uh, the teaching of evolution in public schools outlawed in a few southern states, Uh, Tennessee and um, uh, Virginia, I think. Now my mind is skipping my uh, brain, but a few southern states outlawed the teaching of evolution. And so the ACLU said, well, we think this is wrong, that we're outlawing the teaching of what they saw was a pretty solid scientific perspective. So the ACLU said, we will step up and defend anybody that wants to challenge this law. And so that happened in Dayton, Tennessee, uh, with the the Scopes Monkey Trial. And I love this quote from a historian. He said, until the 1990s, no trial in American history had invited so much attention. Right, what's the trial that happened in the 1990s that invited so much attention to rival the Scopes trial? OJ, right, yeah. So if you remember how much attention we paid to OJ Simpson and everyone's listening, you know, tuning into the radio or the paper or the early internet at the time to figure out what happened every day, imagine that in 1925, okay? So it wasn't happening through TV and, and that media was happening through newspapers. Every major newspaper in the country sent a correspondent down to Tennessee to report on what was happening. And part of it was so public because the, um, the attorney for the prosecution was a three-time presidential candidate named William Jennings Bryant, right? Imagine if, if uh, John McCain or, or Mike Huckabee or some prominent Christian presidential candidate decided to go and try a a case in court, right? We would pay attention. And so this became a national uh, media frenzy, 1925 version of a media frenzy around the teaching of evolution. Now, the, um, the, the prosecution won the case. They did find he taught evolution it was against the law. So they, they want, and he was fined $100, you know, which was you know, a, uh, not a huge amount. It was, it was the lowest amount that he could be fined in, in the case. Um, 
but from many people's perspective, the pro-evolution perspective won, won the war, right? So the anti-evolutionists won the battle, but the pro-evolutionists won the war, in part because William Jennings Bryant was put on the stand. So he was put on the stand in cross-examination, and what did they talk about? They talked about scripture, and they talked about interpretations of evolution, and it came out that Bryant actually didn't have a problem with evolution, that he sort of believed it, and that it was some of his views of scripture were compatible with it. And so uh, even though the anti-evolution position won the trial, in the public eye, many people think that the pro-teaching of evolution uh, sort of won the war. And some historians point back to this trial uh, as the, the reason we have tension between evolution and Christianity in our country that is much less prominent everywhere else in the world. If you go to Western Europe, there is very little tension between science and evolution, or between Christianity and evolution. If you go to Central and South America and Africa and in Asia and those Christian culture, or those Christian communities, they don't wrestle with the evolution or an origins debate. But in our country, we do. Why is that? Well, at least some people think it's because of the Scopes trial, that this sort of cemented in place this tension between Christians and evolution that persists to this day. Okay, one more event we need to discuss, and that is in 1929, the uh, discovery by a man named Edwin Hubble, probably a name you've heard of before, the Hubble Space Telescope, named after him. He was an astronomer, and he's looking up in the skies, and he's paying attention to these distant galaxies that have been discovered, and he notices that the galaxies are moving away from us, and the galaxies that are further away from us are moving away faster than the ones that are close to us. So he comes to the conclusion that the universe is expanding. And this was a novel idea because up until that time, the scientific consensus from the mainstream science was that the universe had always existed. The universe just, it just is, right? It's part of the feature of, of, of everything. So this eventually came, became what we call the Big Bang. And he said, all right, if the universe is expanding, then we can extrapolate back in time and say, well, what's it expanding from? And they found that they could trace back the, uh, with mathematics the origin of the universe to 13.1 billion years ago. This was simultaneously a victory and a struggle for Christians. Because, number one, it was a struggle because it pointed to an ancient universe. And what we'll see is not really yet at this point in history, but eventually later on, we'll see that many Christians don't like the idea of an ancient universe. And we can talk about why that is. But many Christians loved this discovery because it points to the universe had a beginning. And now the atheist secular scientists were, were uh, stuck trying to explain the origin of a universe without some sort of deity, right? What could explain the origin of the universe if it wasn't for God? Now, I think, that, I think that's a, a very valid question to ask. I'm a little hesitant to embrace it too much, partly because of our, our experience with Paley and Newton, right? That when we embrace mysteries as reason for God, if that mystery disappears someday, if some scientist comes up with an explanation that everybody thinks makes sense, then it's going to be another apologetic disaster. So that's a different story altogether. But eventually we did come to the idea that the universe is quite ancient, and now in mainstream science there is very little pushback to that. So if we trace this through history, right, we started out in 1850s with a steady-state universe, steady-state Christian. Um, creation, all species were fixed, they had always existed in their current form in the view of a watchmaker God, and then through evolution by natural selection and the Big Bang, we eventually came to the idea of an evolving universe. And this is now the dominant view in mainstream science. And partly because of that transition away from the views of what some people would consider the traditional reading of Genesis, we eventually got to Christians that were pushing back in a more poignant way. They were no longer anti-evolutionists. We saw the emergence of scientific creationism. With the publication of a book in 1961 called The Genesis Flood, 
and the emergence of, of an organization now called the Institute for Creation Research. And this was the first time, not until the 1960s, were large groups of Christians trying to interpret science through the lens of a literal reading of Genesis. Okay, again, this shocked me when I, when I uh, learned about this, but before the 1960s, there was very little attempt to try and uh, make science fit in with a literal reading of Genesis. And we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come and a little bit more about this here just shortly. Uh, uh, well, yeah, so right now, um, we now in Christian uh, uh, cultures, in, in sort of broader Christianity across the world, we are, we are no longer unified on how to read Genesis or how to interpret the science. We now fit into one of sort of three different views on how God created. We either believe in a young earth view where, uh, where Genesis should be read as a historical narrative. It's just a play-by-play -play account of what happened. It's, it's, it should be read uh, with uh, simple attention to the, the meaning of each word in common English, no uh, poetic uh, account at all. That means that the earth must be six to 10,000 years, according to some people's perspective. They assume that the end of the creation week in Genesis 1 was the end of the first week of the existence of anything. And at the end of that week, we have Adam, and then we have genealogies to trace Adam to Noah, to Abraham, to Jesus, to now. And so if you put all those numbers together, they say, all right, the earth is 6,000 years old. And because of that, they say, we are not on board with evolution. Definitely not macroevolution. Microevolution, no problem. Macroevolution, definitely not. So they don't believe that, uh, you know, that all life descended from a common ancestor. We have another group that is we call progressive creationists or old earth creationists. They accept the scientific conclusion on the age of the earth, 4.5 billion years, and the age of the universe, 13.1 billion years. They read Genesis literally, they say, but they say, I actually think the literal reading doesn't require a young earth. They, 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 um, historically, back in the early 1900s, there was an, an embrace of the idea that there was an um, undefined period of time between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.3. Okay, so they said that ancient earth could have happened before the first day. Uh, but what's more popular now is this, what's called the day-age view, which is that each day, each of the six days uh, described in Genesis 1 could be a, lar a long period of time and that the reading of the scripture allows for that. Again, this is all debated. And then we have uh, what we call evolutionary creationists or evolutionary creationism, which holds the view that, um, that Genesis 1, for sure, but in many cases, Genesis 1 through 11 is not a genre that invites us to read it as a simple historical narrative. Maybe it's historical in aspects, but that it's maybe historical allegory. Or maybe, especially Genesis 1, they say is either poetic or has different interpretations, which I'll talk about next week. Okay, so they're comfortable with the age of the earth being ancient and they're comfortable with evolution. They say scripture is not a science book. It's not trying to teach us how God created. So we stand today with, with tensions, right? We finally got clearly to the, to the tension and the conflict that we experience. Uh, there's tension both within Christianity and there's tensions, a tension between Christians and mainstream science, right? The tensions within Christianity are mostly around about our understanding of God's divine action. Right? And it, when we continue to refer to God's responsibility being what we can't explain with science, it implies that God is mostly present in miracles, but that he's not active in what science can explain. And so we have this odd tension about what does it mean to say God did X, Y, or Z? Does it only happen through miracles? We also have a lot of tension, as you're probably aware, of just how to interpret these passages of Scripture. If we have a high view of Scripture, Genesis 1 through 11, etc., how, how do we all disagree on, on what they mean? And there's a lot of debate about how to interpret those. Now, our, our tensions with broader society are more about this idea related to how God acts. Of how do we portray the idea that Christians are comfortable with the idea of God being present in the scientific mechanisms 
in a way that resonates with, with the broader society. Because they're like, you used to say that God is responsible for X, Y, and Z, and you thought it's because God did it through divine intervention. Now you're saying God did it through scientific mechanism, and they, you know, that's, it's caused problems for us. And then lastly, science has admittedly uh, led to the emergence of a, a popularization of a, of a naturalistic worldview. It has, it is, uh, I hate to say this because I'm an advocate for the compatibility of science and Christianity, but science ha is largely to account for the emergence of, of our modern atheistic movement because science is now explaining what we used to attribute to God. So we need pathways out of this. That's what we're gonna spend all of next week doing is talking about why that conflict doesn't need to be and why I hope that it won't persist. I wanna to end today uh, by playing uh, a video that we made to talk about some of these issues. If I can get it to work. Um, where's the cursor? Maybe just... So here's a question. If you find yourself fascinated by nature, say the nesting habits of woodpeckers, should you worry that studying them will lead you away from your faith? Or if you're energized by your time staring into the fascinating world only seen through a microscope, will it lead you to believe that you have no soul? Or if you regularly ponder the wonders of the stars up above, will a career or hobby in astronomy make you question the existence of God? While these questions may seem absurd, the rocky relationship between science and some streams of Christianity has led some to conclude that believers should not be involved in the study of what they encounter in the outdoors, under a microscope, or twinkling in the galaxy. Is that the case? And if not, why do we believe that what we learn from doing science will conflict with the meaning we derive from our faith? It turns out the conflict is not so much between science and faith as it is between opposing worldviews. If you're not familiar, a worldview is a philosophical understanding of how you believe the world to be. Your worldview influences how you answer big questions like, who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? And how did this world come to be? Your worldview defines how you see the world and your place in it. But what does this have to do with science? As you probably know, we use science to answer questions about the natural world through observation and experiment. You may not know that it's a verb, it's something you do, it's not a collection of facts. Science is a valuable process that can answer questions that theology does not fully address. Christians should not fear science. It produces a better understanding of God's creation, and thus, it should produce a better understanding of God. The tension comes from some underlying assumptions about how science should be performed. A widely held modern approach to science called methodological naturalism limits scientific explanations to only natural causes. According to this standard, any reference to God, miracles, or the supernatural should not be included in answers to any of our scientific questions. This guideline is mostly harmless and even wise when applied to most day-to-day -day scientific studies. However, it sometimes gets inappropriately applied to all questions, not just scientific ones. When this happens, methodological naturalism can morph into a naturalistic worldview whose adherents conclude that there is nothing but what we can see, detect, and understand, and therefore there's no supernatural, no miracles, there's nothing after this life, there's no bigger meaning to life, and obviously, there's no God. So the practice of science can reveal fascinating insights about God's creation. But some mistakenly believe that science can answer every question, which puts them on a path to a naturalistic worldview. This is a concern and that's part of the Christian apprehension with science and an aspect of the perceived conflict. Now a conflict, even just a perceived one, requires two sides. So what do some scientists struggle with regarding Christian beliefs? That question has at least two answers, and similarly, it's tied to worldview. Christians typically respond to worldview questions with answers like, humans are bearers of the image of God. We're here to participate in God's kingdom and to glorify God. We're here to love each other and to steward God's creation, and we're headed into an afterlife determined by our faith in God. These conclusions and others like them are matters of faith, 
They're derived from the Bible, and they can't be tested with an empirical study of the natural world. Thus, we shouldn't be surprised that they frustrate those with a naturalistic worldview who often believe that science is capable of answering all questions. The relationship is further complicated by some Christians who reject scientific conclusions if they believe that the Bible provides clearer answers. This makes the blood of especially atheistic scientists boil. For example, Richard Dawkins, the Oxford evolutionary biologist, believes that Christianity stifles scientific inquiry. He wrote, I am against religion because it teaches us to be satisfied with not understanding the world. Further, he argues that any belief in miracles is flat contradictory not just to the facts of science, but to the spirit of science. While Dawkins does not represent all scientists, he's not alone in his concern that a willing rejection of scientific conclusions on select topics like the age of the earth and evolution can yield a mentality where Christians are comfortable rejecting any scientific discovery that doesn't fit their notion of the world, leading to a naive understanding of science and how the world operates. As Christians, we have a responsibility to tend to this tension. Faith and scripture on one hand, and scientific discoveries about God's material creation on the other. We at Disciple Science believe there is a way to responsibly deal with these questions, and we'll discuss a path forward out of this conflict in a future video. Stay tuned. Okay, so we're left kind of with the bad news, right, that there is this existing tension. But uh, I, I want to invite you back next week where I promise I will be more uplifting. And I think what we need to actually do is what we haven't spent much time in is dig into the Bible and see what Scripture tells us about how God acts. Uh, what Scripture is trying to tell us through the account in Genesis and how we should see compatibility between science and Christianity. So next week, we're gonna talk about a future vision of a harmonious relationship between science and faith. I hope you'll join me for that next week. Thanks for listening to the Disciple Science Podcast. We produce this podcast and all of our videos to show how integrating science with Christian faith can inspire a fuller knowledge of God. We're a crowdfunded nonprofit based in St. Paul, Minnesota, and you can find everything at our website at disciplescience.com. As always, I want to thank Caleb Davis for producing this episode and for composing our theme music. I'm Dale. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon.